0: Shalom, shalom, and welcome to Bet Ariel Wednesday Bible Study on the Book of Dvarim or Deuteronomy. You know, it's always a blessing to meet in the middle of the week, to refuel with his word. And let us take advantage of these times of confinement and curfews to spend time with God in prayer, in meditation and in the scriptures and to strengthen our relationship with him. It will refresh our minds and souls. We're already in the ninth chapter of the book of the Deuteronomy and considering all that was said up to now there's one theme that runs through this section and throughout the book afterwards is that the Lord is saying stay close to me follow my words and you will be blessed and so in my prayer that today's study will bless you that his word will bless you now before we get into our section for today we as we usually do let us answer one question Sharon will read for us
1: Hello, Pastor. This question has come up so many times in Jewish circles and has a lot to do with, I believe, the true definition of who is a Jew. Some acquaintances of mine have questioned whether they can consider themselves Jewish because their birth mother, who is Gentile, converted to Judaism. Does that really make them Jewish? I even heard that the Orthodox rabbis don't accept conversions done under the banner of conservative or Reformed Judaism. This is all very confusing. So my question is, how does conversion fit in when determining who is a Jew?
0: Uh, thank you for your question you know conversion to judaism is not found in the hebrew scriptures it's not found in the torah it's not found in the tanakh it is relatively a new concept which began at the time of the maccabees uh, (coughs) about a hundred years before the coming of yeshua and it coincides with the rise of the pharisees or modern rabbinical judaism before this, there was no such thing as conversion to Judaism. Any Gentiles coming into the fold of Israel and who had faith in the book, uh, that is, in the God of the Bible, was welcomed, but each kept its or his ancestry. For instance, Ruth was always called Ruth the Moabites. Now, the reason why there is no conversion to Jewishness in sim- is simply because a Jew is part of a people and should not be defined by faith. Therefore, why ca- one cannot physically convert to another people or group of people. However, the Pharisees, who are at the root of creating modern rabbinical Judaism, decided that whoever converted to their system of belief earned the right to be identified as Jewish. This is unbiblical so today when a person converts to judaism little do they realize that a jew is a people not a faith and so they are not transforming into a jew but they are converting into a religious belief system jesus himself complained about this new trend in his time when he said in matthew 23 15 to you scrubs and pharisees hypocrites Because you travel around on uh, on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. The, The Pharisees made many proselytes. Proselyte. What, what, what is a proselyte? By definition, to pros- proselytize is to recruit someone to join one's party, one's institution, or one's religion. The Pharisees, when bringing in a proselyte, don't evangelize or proclaim the good news of salvation. There is a big difference here. History also testifies that the Pharisees were very efficient in doing in going around converting Gentiles into their belief. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote, There is not one city, Greek or barbarian, nor a single nation to which our custom of abstaining from work on the seventh day has not spread. These poor people who converted and still convert are not transforming into a Jew, but into a follower of a sect or religion. Furthermore, In history, forceful conversion to Judaism has caused much problems to the Jewish nation. The first conversions of this type came to at the time of the Maccabees, when a people called the Eduminians. This was carried out by John Hyrcanius, who who was a Hasmonean leader, also known as Jonathan Cohen Gadol, for he was a high priest at that point. This happened around 125 BC, but the Eduminians. Who who mass converted to Judaism were descendants of the Edomites. And one of them was Herod, who became king of Judah and caused much havoc in Israel, wanting to kill the real king of Israel Israel or Judah, that is Yeshua Mashiach, if you remember the story of Christmas. So let's turn back to the scriptures to remind ourselves of the biblical definition of who a Jew is, a definition which destroys this new concept. Of conversion. A Jew is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all such descendants are Jews. Biblical Jewishness is rooted in the Abrahamic covenant that we find in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The promise that God was going to form a new nation through the seed of Abraham isaac and jacob it is through them abraham isaac and jacob that this nation was formed we cannot define the jewish line as coming from only abraham and isaac because other people like the edomites and the ishmaelites stemmed from their lines so it must be especially through jacob and his 12 sons who are at the root of the jewish nation Therefore, any descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all such descendants are Jews. And furthermore, it doesn't matter what the individual Jew may believe or disbelieve, he will always remain a Jew. In fact, not too many Jews really ever followed the God of the Scriptures, and today, statistics tell us that over 45% of Jewish Israelites or in Israel are atheists or agnostics, but they are still Jews. One more point when it comes to the definition of a Jew. I've met many who had a Jewish father, yet they did not consider themselves Jewish because 2,000 years ago, the Pharisees decided that Jewishness is determined by the mother. And so it, it, this has today stayed ingrained in the tenets of rabbinical Judaism. But this is not biblical either. If one parent is Jewish, the person is Jewish. Ironically enough, the Bible even points out the importance of the father over the mother in determining the Jewishness. Take, for instance, two offsprings of a Jewish father and an Egyptian mother. Look at Manasseh and Ephraim. Rabbinical Judaism would render them not Jewish because of the mother. Yet, they came to form two large tribes of Israel rightly named Manasseh and Ephraim. Another example is Gershom and Eliezer. Moses' son, they had a Jewish father, but their mother was a Cushite, yet they were priests in Israel. King David's great-grandmother was Ruth, the Moabites. A Jew is a Jew if any of the two parents are Jewish. Now, a true conversion brings us to adopt and accept a new way of thinking, but does not change our ethnic identity. In Acts 15, for instance, it speaks of how the Gentiles, by by the preaching of Paul and Barnabas, were converted. What what did they convert to? To the revealed word found in scriptures, to faith in Yeshua as their sin-bearer Messiah uh, and Lord. They turned to a new way of life in the Messiah. This, I want to tell you, is true conversion. And this type of conversion was not limited only to the Gentiles, but Jews need to convert as well. In Acts 3:19, Peter speaking in Solomon's court tells his fellow Israelites, "Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That time of refreshing may come from the Lord." Jews need to repent to the God of the scriptures. That, in God's eyes, is when true conversion takes place, when a change of heart and a turnaround takes place in the mind and soul of a man or a woman. Let's now turn to our study of Deuteronomy. We are in page 10 of your handout, section 4. You can always download the handout from our website at betariel.ca. So we have seen that as Moses was receiving the law on Mount Sinai, the people of Israel were getting impatient, so they began to do what? To build the golden calf. As they did, God told Moses to hurry down the mountain, which he did. And when he saw the huge golden calf, he broke the t- tablets of the law, surely in order to avoid the judgment falling on all of Israel. However, while the judgment was not going to fall on all Israel, Moses sought for those who were responsible for building the golden calf for it was a bunch of rebels who did that, and who were especially, by the way, from the tribe of Shimeon, as we learn later on. This is their second major transgression in Israel from this tribe. The first one was against the people of Shechem, if you remember with the story of Dina. The son of the leader of Shechem raped their sister Dina, but fell in love with her and wanted to marry her. So both Shimeon and Levi, who had the same mother as Dina, fooled the people of Shechem and asked them to be circumcised, so they will be they will give Dina to them to be married. But on the day of their circumcision they attacked them and they killed them. This is why Shimeon had no land portion in Israel, only a piece of land within the tribe of Judah, as you can see in the screen. However, the tribe which helped Moses to find them were of the tribe of Levi. This is why they were reestablished and given the office of priests, but no land was ever, never given to them either. So there's a lot of drama by the way behind the history of Israel. But now, let us see the way Moses looked for those who built the golden calf. His ways has intrigued so many uh, commentators. This is this is how he did it. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 21.
1: Then I took your sin, the calf which you had made and burnt it with fire and crushed it and ground it very small until it was as fine as dust and i threw its dust into the brook that descended from the mountain
0: so moses burnt the golden calf into dusts and then threw the dust into a brook to the water now why would he do something like that the book of exodus tells us that he actually made them drink made the israelites drink that water this is what we read in Exodus thirty-two twenty.
1: Then he took the calf which they had made, burnt it in the fire, and ground it to a powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it.
0: Again, the question is, why did the calf, he, bur- he burnt the calf into dust and then have the Israelites drink it? This is what intrigued many. Many rabbis actually have noticed that this passage has a lot of similarities with the passage that we find in Numbers chapter 5 verses 11 to 31, which speaks in fact of the same kind of sin, of transgression, which is idolatry or adultery in the case of Numbers. And there we might find the reason for Moses' action. The portion of numbers 5 says that if a man suspected his wife of adultery he would go to the temple to she would go to the temple and see the priest that is the man first and there the priest would do something very similar to what Moses did here he would call the woman and then make her drink a mixture of water with the dust from the floor of the tabernacle see what It says in Numbers five twenty to twenty one.
1: But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, "The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell."
0: Strong and intriguing, isn't it? I'm not sure that this ever was done to a woman, just the fact of being right in front of the priest and the water, the woman would readily confess if she was, of course, guilty. But the sin of the woman, if she committed adultery, is the same as that of Israel when Israel committed idolatry. Idolatry in the scriptures is synonymous to spiritual, too, that is, adultery. Now, could it be that those who were identified as guilty among the camp, a camp of three million Israelites and who drank the water from the brook, may have their belly swollen as well? Many believe that, uh, that after drinking the water from the brook, which was mixed with the dust of gold from the golden calf, that they had their belly Swollen. This is what many rabbis actually concluded. Rashi, Ibn Ezra, and the Targum of Jonathan believed this could be the case, and they might have a point here. Otherwise, why, how would they find out such a small amount of people Okay, in, three, in, the, in a population of 3 million? Now, there is one question we must ask. How, actually, considering all these things, how could the Israelites build the Golden Calf? How could they have come to do such a thing after they have seen so many signs and miracles from God? It was just three months after the great miracle of their deliverance from Egypt where they witnessed the power of God in the plagues, including the opening of the sea. They also witnessed God's love and provision for them in in other miracles as well, such as the water coming out of a rock. And what about the manna that, that, that awaited, them day in and day out? How could men so soon forget? The answer is very easily. And this is where the text actually speaks to us here. Let us not be too harsh on the Israelites. We too forget. But let us see how actually the Israelites fail. The answer is found in Exodus chapter 32 the first thing in understanding what happened and how the story touches us all is to see the popular perception of Moses at that time in verse 1 we read as for this Moses they said as he was going up the mountain as for this Moses the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt we do not know what has become of him Moses did not tell them how long he was going. I believe he himself did not know. And 40 days and 40 nights was an awful long time. And so they may have wondered about what happened to him and how did he even have the provision to last that long, even water or food. They wonder if he was still alive. And so they asked Aaron to give them something. They asked him to build something tangible that they could fill fill their spiritual void and find rest and comfort in the face of God. Now, see what Aaron said to them when he finished building the golden calf. It is very revealing. Exodus 32, 4-5.
1: He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, "'This is your God, O Israel,' who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord.
0: See how he presented the golden calf as a simple physical reminder of Jehovah, of the Lord. See that in their minds, they were not really worshipping the golden calf itself, but God through the calf. Let's not forget that these people were coming out of Egypt where idolatry was very rampant. So what they did was to mix their belief in God with what they thought was appropriate or what they were used to seeing. They mixed the old and the new religion, and so they committed idol idolatry breaking of course the first three commandments in their perception they were not doing anything bad they themselves associated the manufactured calf with god who brought them out of egypt and Aaron himself the high priest told them tomorrow shall be a feast of jehovah that was in front of the golden calf but how could he mix the golden calf with jehovah this is why when it comes to knowing God and having a relationship with him, we ought to know who he is and how he reveals himself in his word so we don't build our own golden calf. This is how close we are in doing such a thing. We we often take the, the, the God of the Bible and dress him up so that he would fit our beliefs and our own expectation. This is what the Israelites did there. And this is what is called what leads to idolatry it's so easy i want to tell you to add and remove and change things to make us comfortable to make us fit our way of thinking that's what we do when it comes to the image of god this is where the root of idolatry could be found man i want to tell you has not changed for the last 3500 years we still build idols and mixing map, map with god and see Aaron, what, why was he not punished he still kept his office of high priest while he may have been a weak leader. Perhaps his heart was sincere. You know, he repented. And this we find in Numbers twelve eleven.
1: So Aaron said to Moses, O oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned.
0: But I see that he's actually calling Moses my Lord now. Moses is no more the young brother, but a Lord. And the word preceding my Lord, the Hebrew be, uh, uh, translates, oh, oh, my Lord. This is often translated by the word, please, my Lord, and often used as a permission to speak. What a change. Nothing like a dose of fear of the Lord to bring someone back on track. And most importantly, Aaron, who was the high priest, still realized the mediatorial work, of Moses. Aaron does not address God directly, but he goes through Moses and he understood the concept of a mediator. Here again, we can see how Moses typifies the Messiah as the mediator and see what Aaron further tells him. Please, he says to him, do not lay this sin on us. But Moses did not have this this power to forgive or or remove sin from someone's life. However, Aaron knew that Moses' position, his closeness to god made it possible for him to speak to god about it and this speaks loudly to us who today has a mediatorial position and is sitting at the right hand of god but yeshua mashiach you see the book the torah itself leads to the messiah and there is found here another truth we should not miss Concerning one more time Moses role as mediator this humble man had a lot to carry and it is in Deuteronomy 18 I want to bring you to there now where Moses clearly makes a distinction between himself and the antitype he was pointing to that is Yeshua Mashiach there he speaks of the one to come and would be the true mediator we read in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, speaking of Yeshua he says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst from your brethren him you shall hear what he really says here is perhaps with great grief is that he is not the prophet to come here, as with John the Baptist, he speaks of another one to come, which is, who is Yeshua. And in the same passage of Deuteronomy 18, verse 19, God takes over and says something very powerful concerning the Messiah. And it shall be, he says, that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. They disbelieve Moses and all the other prophets, by the way. This they could get away with, everyone could get away with this, but what God says here is that no one will get away with disobeying the prophet like unto Moses, who is Yeshua himself. For with this prophet, priest, and king, the Lord will require our obedience to him. In Psalm 2, we also read about the one to come. It it warns us of the same thing. There we read...
1: Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are
0: those who put their trust in him. Jesus is not a mere prophet or a simple teacher, faith in and obedience to the Lord judges our eternity. Without him, there's no hope. This is the message of the Torah, even of the Tanakh. And this relationship between Moses and Jesus can be further developed when Noticing that both Moses and the Messiah, as with Israel, are stamped with the number 40. It comes out. It comes out. This is what comes out when we compare both. Moses did not eat bread, if you remember, 40 days and 40 nights. Well, Jesus as well did not eat bread 40 days and 40 nights just before his temptation in Matthew 4. But he won, of course, this temptation. It was during that 40 day and night period of fasting that Moses prayed for God to spare the Israelites from the judgment. But the ultimate 40 day and night fast was seen with Yeshua. For after his fasting came that first challenge that showed heaven and earth that he was indeed the son of God. Ready to die for the sins of the people which he did of course. Furthermore, looking back to Moses, we see that he spent 40 years in Midian and he was 40 years old when the lord called them into leadership more on this number 40 can also be seen in the life of the messiah there was a 40 year period between the crucifixion and the destruction of jerusalem a time i believe that he gave israel to repent again and again yeshua spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection This number 40 connects Yeshua to Moses, but at the end, Moses is replaced by the ultimate mediator. Israel herself is also replaced by the ultimate mediator, for he, Yeshua, succeeded in doing what Israel was called to do, but failed to do. And of course, at his second coming, he will render Israel her position as the priestly nation. Now let us move, I have enough time to move to the next section that comprises Deuteronomy ten. To twelve, a, a great and beautiful portion. The Deuteronomy, I will tell you, is like is, is in fact the lengthiest uninterrupted speech given to any biblical character. Where our teacher Moses pours out his heart out and reminds us to always go back to the source—that is, the Word of God—and this he does with no concern of being found repetitive, like a parrot. Who who voices all possible advice and recommendation while the child continues to get further and further away from his important counsel, and Moses' profound concern concern that is can be further understood in that he was at a point in his life where he had witnessed actually the death of one million or approximately one million two hundred thousand people in a thirty year thirty eight year period. This would be the entire adult population which left Egypt, those from the age twenty and upward. All this because they had disbelieved in God, beginning with the golden calf and until Kadesh Barnea, where they had refused to enter the land because of those giants and disregarded God's protection. There, their, their disobedience reached its peak, and God could not allow this generation to enter the land. Their 11-day journey actually turned out to be 38 years' trek. It must have been such a disappointment for Moses. Let, Let me just bring you to Psalm 90, which was written around the time of the Deuteronomy. This is what Moses says, 90 verses 14 to 15
1: oh satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us the years in which we have seen evil
0: You see, Moses longed for the well-being of his people. He knew that he was about to enter his eternal abode and reach heaven or or that city as it is spoken of in Hebrews 11, a city he longed for so much. But this longing was overshadowed by his concern for his people. And a, a good description of Moses' state Comes perhaps from the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1, 23 to 24, when he says,
1: For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Messiah, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is
0: more needful for you. You know, you see, both these men of God shared the same task in ushering the people into a new dispensation, and both shared the same. Uh, love for the people and however while both paul and moses were of very different character they are very similar in that they both share again that same yearning and love for the people of israel and so moses knew and understood the depth of the sin of disobedience he knew and experienced the fleeting of time he knew god intimately, and he loved his people so much all of this makes Deuteronomy the a very practical book for all of us today, as our lives and struggles and our journey are so much like that of the Israelites. Now, this is all the time we have for today. It is my prayer that you've been blessed by these great mm-hmm. things that we find in Deuteronomy.
2: The <laughs>